You are a storyteller, and you're both the main character and the author of your story. Are you ready to pick up the pen and decide how your story goes? Welcome to the Rewriting Myth Podcast, where we use mindset, spirituality, myths, legends, and history to craft your personal mythology and spark a paradigm shift from within. Let's dive in. Hey there, welcome back to another episode. I've got a fun and shorter one for you today that I am excited to go into. This one is anthropomorphism, the underrated self-development tool. And I love this because something that I find endlessly fascinating as far as what differentiates humans from the rest of the animal kingdom is storytelling. And really the ability to see intangible ideas as human-like, in a way. Ancient cultures gave virtues like love and fortune and justice human characteristics, which we still do in some ways today. And this process is called anthropomorphism. It means having a human form. So the word anthropomorphism comes from the Greek for human and form, and it was originally thought of to use as a way to refer to gods that resembled humans, albeit superhumans, really. And in our hyper-rationalized world today, it's easy to dismiss the idea of anthropomorphism as something our sophisticated modern science has disproven, right? After all, the emotion of love is simply an excretion of a specific hormone in the brain, not a goddess blessing you or cursing you, right? Hopefully with this episode today, you'll see complex emotions and other intangible things with a more mythic lens and be able to see your, your emotions and the world around you in a new light. Now, let me be clear though, I am all for science. My goal is not to disparage rational thought and scientific processes, but to look at the world in a way that expands our field of vision and includes what we know from advances in sciences and technology. So with that said, let's get into it. So the Greeks and Romans anthropomorphized human values and virtues with gods like Nike, meaning victory, and Kratos, meaning strength, and others like that. Now, sometimes these gods had narrative mythic stories, like Kratos as a side character in Aeschylus' play Prometheus Bound, and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were just these ideas that the ancients would look at uh, to be able to describe and explain human, the human condition, really. Now, the Greeks were not the only ones to view their gods through an anthropomorphic lens. All of the modern Abrahamic religions have anthropomorphized virtues and emotions, as do lesser-known pre-Abrahamic ones like Zoroastrianism. Now, before I give you examples of anthropomorphism in Zoroastrianism, we'll first dive into what Zoroastrianism is because it's an interesting religion and it's very ancient and it's been both influenced and was influencing Judaism and it's one of the oldest religions that's still practiced today, which I find so fascinating. So while Zoroastrianism is not as popular in the modern Abrahamic religions, its popularity is growing, especially in the North American continent. Um, even the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about it in 2020. And if you want to read that article, I have it linked on the substack that's connected to this episode. 
The religion was started by a man named Zoroaster in as early as about 4,000 years ago in modern-day Iran. So for context, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, he was sentenced to death in classical Athens about 2,500 years ago or 2,500 years ago. So like with all ancient mythologies and spiritual traditions, Zoroastrianism started in the oral tradition. So its sacred words were memorized and spoken aloud during its rituals. With Zoroastrianism, you'll see a lot of familiar tropes in its mythology as you would in the Christian mythology or other Abrahamic religions and things like that. So in Zoroastrianism, the main god, Ahura Mazda, is at odds with a personification of evil. Now, as far as the humans that follow Zoroastrianism, they believe that once a soul dies, it can either experience eternal bliss or eternal punishment in the afterlife based on how they chose to live on the earthly plane. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I bring up Zoroastrianism today because they had lesser deities that represented human virtues. So Zoroastrians, they had what was called Amesha Spenta, meaning bounteous immortals. So these were considered lesser versions of the main god Ahura Mazda. So these included deities like good mind and righteousness, wholeness, immortality, and many, many more that I won't go into here. But these immortal deities were essentially emanations of Ahura Mazda and his personality. These remind me a lot of Christian saints or Catholic saints specifically, representing ideas and virtues like Saint Raphael, the archangel. And you know, he is the patron saint of healing. Now, what I find most fascinating about mythologies and religions that anthropomorphize human emotions and virtues is how they, how doing so puts intangible and abstract ideas like these into a human-like form. And doing so lets us understand them more simply. It's a lot like how a really poignant metaphor in poetry can make us feel the emotion that the poet is attempting to convey much more precisely than just simply reading out what the emotion is. And in our logic-obsessed world, we lose connection with the divine, or universe, God, source, whatever term you like to prefer. When we lose that connection to that divinity, it's more difficult for us to see or understand any of this in our daily lives because science and psychology can explain away universal truths that in the past only divinity could explain. Like for example, how we know that love is an emotion that comes from the brain, not Aphrodite or other love deities. Yet even with all of that, we still yearn for a way to see the abstract and the world around us in an anthropomorphic way. So I'll give you a real world example. If you ever worked in sales or the corporate environment at all, you know that the best way to sell an item or a service is through storytelling. When you allow your prospective buyers to envision how much the service you're trying to sell affects their human condition, it's much more effective than trying to sell the service based on just statistics and things like that. I used to work at a local decor shop that offered tailored interior decorating. Now we sold the service by having prospective clients envision themselves in a newly decorated house, making their emotions about having a beautiful home become much more tangible. 
we made the decorating service have an anthropomorphic quality by highlighting how it affected the clients on a human level. So a home's beauty isn't just something a customer could physically see with their eyes. Home beauty was represented by the guests that the customer would have over to their house for dinner parties who would marvel at their beautiful homes. Now, let's think about anthropomorphism on a different level now. Healing the body can be explained through science, and healing the mind can be explained through psychology and psychiatry, right? So, with resources like that, why turn to a deity-like figure representing healing when we can bring healing into the 3D with solid science? I would argue that the answer is to blend both science and spirituality. Keeping in with this example of healing, if you pray to the saint Raphael for healing and feel the spirit of the saint within you, that can only help. Now, of course, while seeking scientific medical treatment simultaneously, of course. If we're thinking along those lines, and if you genuinely think that a saint or deity of your chosen religion or spirituality practice is something that you can call upon, then that spiritual mindset can help with the healing process as you seek scientifically backed treatment. Many studies about the power of a positive placebo effect and the positive attitude exist out there that support that. Now, if thinking about gods, saints, angels, and deities sounds a little bit too far-fetched for you, then think about anthropomorphism in a psychological term. So what if you considered these deities as archetypes instead? So archetypes being images, ideas, and universal truths that live within all humans. And what if these archetypes are ready to be called upon anytime that you need them? So let's suppose that the 20th century psychoanalyst Carl Jung is correct when he coined the terms archetype and collective unconsciousness. In that case, these archetypes live in the collective unconscious, which means that these qualities are already within all of us, ready to be called upon even if they seem dormant. So something like victory can't be produced artificially no matter how much the sports apparel company named after it would like you to think. Yet it's still an archetype that you can tap into and practice embodying. So how drastically would things change if you practice believing that victory was something that you could call upon when needed? Someone may argue that victory depends on the situation you have to win or lose or whatever, right? But what if I told you that victory is just a human construct with no set rules? What if you just decided that because you called upon the energy of victory today and you practice embodying that archetype, you found ways that you were victorious today? So let me give you an example. Like this morning, I worked out before I even made breakfast. Now, to me, that is a win for sure. I embodied victory because I told myself when I got up that I would work out first thing in the morning, even before breakfast. And then I did that. I didn't wait to embody the feeling or the emotion of victory after I worked out. I didn't wait to embody it until the workout was complete. I tapped into that energy when I was deciding to do it. I tapped into that energy before I even worked out and before I had that win technically. On a mythic level, you could say I called out to the goddess of victory. Or on a really spiritual level, you could say I became the goddess of victory herself in that moment because I called upon that power that was already within me. Now, 
It didn't really matter if victory was an archetype buried deep within, or if she was a goddess that I called upon, or even a goddess that I possessed. What truly mattered was how I could tangibly see and add an intangible concept like victory into my life to improve it for the better. Now that, I think, is the real power of adding anthropomorphism into your life. Maybe thinking about human virtues like love and kindness with an anthropomorphic lens is helpful when you want to embody them or even distance yourself from them with negative ones like envy. Or maybe thinking about them in a more psychological style like Carl Jung's archetypes is better suited for you. Either way, I think the real magic is seeing that these qualities live within all of us, and with practice we can call them in or release them when need be. After all, if we're kicking it back to Zoroastrianism, the central conflict in this mythology is between a good deity, Ahura Mazda, and the forces of evil. There are many hymns within the literature of Zoroastrianism detailing how humans either fall in line behind one or the other, right? And the result of this decision affects their afterlife. Quote, the wicked receive hell and the holy receive heaven, the best mental state, unquote. So what if instead of waiting for resurrection or redemption or the eternal afterlife, like this Zoroastrian quote teaches us, what if instead we try to create that heaven, that best mental state, as they say, in the here and now by tapping into all the tools that we have in our toolbox. I think that's when a paradigm shift can happen. How about you? All right, everybody. I'll see you next time. Bye. If you enjoyed what you heard on today's episode, then I invite you to take this work further and continue the conversation over on Instagram or threads. I'm at monica.frederick.writes on both. And if you're ready to really start the rewriting myth process for yourself and catch up on past episodes and newsletters, then subscribe to my Substack newsletter at monicafrederick.substack.com. There, you can access private chats and resources that I only share with my newsletter subscribers. And you can learn how to work with me directly to help facilitate the rewriting myth process and implement what you learn here on the podcast. Check out the links in the show notes to get started.